Well, first, <coughs> let me thank the University of Cardiff for uh, organizing this and inviting us. Um, and thank you for, for coming this evening. Um, the, um, Colin and I are doing two things which fit snugly together. That's why it's a British Academy joint lecture tour. And we're very grateful for the British Academy to putting the whole lecture tour together. Um, the future of the corporation is, of course, nested within this larger context of the future of capitalism itself. And so we're going to start with the big picture of the future of capitalism, and then Colin will drill down to the future of the corporation. So I will be very light on the future of the corporation. It's obviously a central part of the future of capitalism, but Colin's going to cover it. Um, so I'm going to be talking about this, the future of capitalism. And it's subtitled Facing the New Anxieties, because there are new anxieties. Right? Um, capitalism is the only system we've ever found in the course of human history that is capable of pretty continuously increasing mass living standards. But it doesn't do that on autopilot. Periodically, capitalism derails. Right? Capitalism has been around in its modern form for about 250 years, um, and it's derailed big time three times. Um, I'm going to be talking about the, the present derailment, which started around 1980. Um, but first, I'm going to talk about a little bit about the first derailment. Um, which uh, happened in the 1840s. Um, the second big derailment was mass unemployment in the 30s, which, which you're familiar with, but people are less familiar with the, that first derailment. So the genius of capitalism was to, to make people mass massively more productive through firms than they were working solo. And so the first factories on Earth were built in the north of England, indeed 10 miles from where I grew up in Sheffield, is the world's first factory, which is now a World Heritage Center. Right? And that was in the, the, about the 1770s. By the 1840s, people had clustered the factories together, and these were the new industrial cities, like Sheffield, where I grew up. Right? And people flocked to these cities. Right? Um, I'm actually going to talk about the, the fastest growing city of all in, in the whole of Europe in the mid-19th century uh, was Bradford. And my grandfather moved from an impoverished German village to Bradford um, to go to Boomtown, Boomtown Europe, Bradford. And, um, and lots of other people, you fl people flocked into this city, much more productive, um, but um, because these were the first cities, industrial cities on Earth, nobody knew anything about them. And so there was no public policy at all. And so what happens if you flock people together in the same concentrated space and have no public policy? The sewage gets mixed up with the drinking water. People are herded together, living cheek by jowl. So in 1849, what happened in Bradford was entirely predictable cholera. Thousands of people were dying. Life expectancy in the industrial cities of the northern England by the 1840s had collapsed to only, the average life expectancy was 19. Yeah? So these became killing fields. They were the nearest approach we've found other than the context of war for hell on earth. Yeah. People were productive, but their environments were unlivable. Yeah. So why I sketch that is the response that happened. And the response, the setting for what I'm going to talk about is that economic man, which some of you will be taught about, people who is economic man, he's greedy, selfish, and lazy. 
Right? He's maximizing a utility function with consumption, his own, minus effort. Right? Greedy, selfish, lazy. Right? That is a travesty of what a human being is. Right? Economists like myself, my own, I'm an economist, so is Colin, right? our profession thinks that evolution produced people who are greedy and selfish. Actually, they're completely wrong. The, the only economists who think that are the people who are deeply ignorant about the uh, anthropology and, um, uh, of evolution right? uh, and the neuroscience. What we can now show, not, not economists, but what the science can show, uh, is that economic man died out because for about half a million years of prehistory, um, the only way you could survive was if you were in a group. And economic man was far too selfish to be trusted in a group, and so was thrown out and died out. Um, and so uh, man is naturally social, um, naturally part wants to belong to a group, not only wants to belong to a group, wants the esteem of the group, and so is natu naturally learns to build reciprocal obligations within the group. Indeed, the chemical process that does that, if you draw on neuroscience, the chemical process is oxytocin, and the release of oxytocin is actually biologically reflexive. Right? So if I release oxytocin when I see you, you release oxytocin when you see me. Right? So we naturally build reciprocal obligations. Right? There's a chemistry there. Right? That's at the individual level. But what's much more important are the organizations which individuals build for a larger purpose. As individuals, we can't achieve very much. But when we band together in organizations, we can achieve a lot. And there are two organizations which are absolutely fundamental to human existence. One is the family, which is the only organizational form we've ever found which can raise children successfully. And the other organizational form is the firm, which is the only organizational form we've ever found which can make people productive. Right? So <coughs> um, both of these organizations have to be and naturally are morally load-bearing, families and firms. And so I want to just illustrate that with what happened in Bradford and places like it in the 1840s. So here we are, hell on earth, cholera. The biggest businessman in Bradford, Sir Titus Salt, uh, was, the, as it were, the billionaire industrialist of the time. And he was also uh, had a political career because he was the big fish in Bradford, so he was the mayor. And he was the local MP. Yeah? So he was big shot, right? Um, and there he was in 1849, he was the mayor, his workers were dying en masse, his citizens were dying en masse, and it seared his soul. He realized that he had a moral responsibility to do something about it. Nobody knew what caused cholera, so he couldn't fix the problem, but he recognized that the environment in Bradford was hell. Right? And so he built the first purpose-built industrial town on earth a clean, proper town with housing for his workers. He was tied to salt, the town, salt air, that is also now a World Heritage Center because it was the world first. Right? He recognized his obligations to his workforce. He also recognized his obligations to his citizens. And so with his, the rest of his fortune, he gave his entire fortune away. Right? It was Bill Gates before Bill Gates. And he spent the rest of his fortune cleaning up Bradford. Right? His workers responded with loyalty. His citizens responded with respect and love. So he became the big hero of Bradford. His funeral, the whole of Bradford turned out. There's a statue in the city center. He is still very fondly remembered as the, as the hero of the city. Right? That was business. What was that? It was reciprocal obligations. He recognized his obligations as the most successful businessman in the city to his workforce and as the mayor to his citizens. And people responded to that. His workers and his local community responded. Reciprocal obligations. Right? 
That was Bradford and the business organization. Let's now go, we only have to go a few miles from there to Rochdale in the 1840s. Same thing was happening, hell on earth. And now we turn to families. What did they do? Well, families in Rochdale, hopefully you know the Rochdale pioneers. They invented a structure of reciprocal obligations to face the very practical anxieties that they were dealing with. Right? If you were going to die at 19, would you get a burial? Right? And so what was born in Rochdale in the 1840s was the cooperative movement, a structure of each family saying, we'll accept obligations to you if you accept obligations to us. Right? That was Rochdale, a few miles north, Halifax. Halifax, the, 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 the same cooperative movement, um, evolved uh, reciprocal obligations that answered the question, um, where you want to live? Yeah? And the Halifax Building Society became the biggest bank in Britain, yeah? before being destroyed by the city. Um, so the same structure of reciprocal obligations occurred naturally in the business community with workers and the businessmen and local community and amongst families, reciprocal obligations, dealing very practically, pragmatically with the anxieties thrown up by the derailment. Right? That was then, this is now. Why is now different? So the derailment is always takes a different form. This time the, the, the derailment is, um, is, a, is a new rift in society, and it, it takes two forms. One is a spatial rift between a booming metropolitan agglomeration and periodically broken provincial cities. That's happened around the Western world, but it's in its most extreme form in Britain. Only in Britain has the spatial divide basically shrunk to a core periphery problem. London is the core. Every other province of Britain um, fails to get above the national average income. Most of them are below. Wales is well below, right? So is my hometown of Sheffield. Right? So that's the new spatial divide. It reverses 200 years of spatial convergence with poorer regions catching up. The other divide is between the well-educated and the less educated. 200 years until 1980, that gap was narrowing. Since 1980, it's been widening. So if we bring these two together, the skilled, the well-educated in the metropolis are on a, have been for 40 years on an up escalator. Productivity rising, incomes rising. And the provincial less educated who invested in manual skills has been on a down escalator as their cities get broken and uh, their skills get devalued. And so we've seen this, space, this divide, right? a widening divide. The economics of that is very straightforward. I won't even bore you with it. It's basically uh, globalization and the, the price we pay for rising productivity is greater complexity, which requires more, uh, more skills, more cognitive skills. So it's the premium on the well-educated. That's, that's the, the economic mechanics of it. These are perfectly fixable divides, and half the book is about how you can fix them. So technically, it is not that difficult to do something about these divides, to heal them. The extraordinary thing is that nothing has been done. Those divides have got worse and worse for 40 years. And the intellectual interesting puzzle is why this time, unlike the 1840s, unlike the 1930s, the problem has just been allowed to get worse and worse. And the answer is that the old pattern of families and firms being morally load-bearing and responding to practical anxieties by building reciprocal obligations, that has gone. And it's gone because both the political right and the political left 
had been captured, instead of pragmatism, facing the anxieties as they come up, the political right and the left have both been captured by ideologies. I won't say much about the ideology of the right because Colin will be talking much more about the ideology that came in through business schools, from Milton Friedman, the doctrine that firms were not morally load-bearing. Their only obligation was to make profits for shareholders, right? The mantra um, of maximizing shareholder value, right? So firms ceased to be morally load-bearing. So did families. Where did, the where did the obligations go? They floated up to the state, which took on all the obligations and then showered down the rights so that the, the genius of reciprocal obligations is that the process of generating the rights is precisely matched by the process of generating the obligations. So it's a non-inflationary moral economy. Um, once the obligations float up to the state and rights shower down, we've got the moral equivalent of printing money. Right? So why did that come about? Um, so for example, families, really got stripped of moral obligation, what is laughably described as children's rights, the rights showering down, are actually not the rights of children, they're the rights of the state to overrule families. And so it's the move, the removal of rights from families and taking it up to government, which runs, um, which scrutinizes families in a system of social paternalism. And uh, um, that is both uh, very dysfunctional and really very unethical. Everything has to be morally load-bearing um, because families are the only system which actually has the tacit knowledge to be able to successfully raise children. It's, of course, a very stressful process, so you need to provide families with a lot of help, but the process of providing help needs to be detached from the system of scrutiny. And so in the book, what I advocate is I call social maternalism, a support system for families separated out from scrutiny. Yeah. Um, just to give you an example of what, uh, what social paternalism has produced, um, 70,000 children are taken off, are taken off their families um, and then parked, warehoused, um, in um, very few children are adopted. They're parked in this transient uh, form of fostering, which we know from social psychology and neurology is just a disastrous form of raising children right? because it produces instability. Right? So why did that happen, the disappearance of obligations from families and the capture by the state? Because not only was... Uh, economics believing in economic man, selfish, greedy, incapable of moral load-bearing, but it also needed some theory of, uh, some normative theory of public policy, and what economics picked up was utilitarianism, which is a, uh, a, a ridiculous um, ethical framework, but was incredibly handy for economics, because you just added up utils and then maximized the sum of utils, right? Um, uh, this is a, I, I haven't got time to reveal in detail why utilitarianism is a load of crap um, as an ethical framework, that's a technical term. Um, but, um, uh, but the consequence, if you believe that People and the organizations people build are incapable of moral agency, but you want to maximize global utility, what you need is some saints. Right? Plato had thought of that. They're called platonic guardians. Right? Plato didn't believe in democracy. He thought that was an awful system. Right? What Plato believed in was rule by the, 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 the saints. And he made a little mistake. He thought the saints were philosophers, but economists put him right on that one, right? 
Um, so, um, so public policy has to be run by saints who appear exogenously. Though, of course, they're trained in economics, right? What we know, actually, is that training in economics um, is, the, is the one discipline which tends to produce people who are selfish and greedy, right? So you do an economics degree, you come out more selfish and greedy than when you went in, right? This economists are very clever at um, measuring things, and we can establish that as a fact, right, statistically. Um, so it, economics produces the saints who people the top of society, but because everybody underneath is these greedy little shits, we need absolute power at the top. That's why we need social paternalism. We have to order families about, order firms, well, firms are not morally load-bearing and we just leave them with, we order them about with regulation. Right? But what we don't do is think that they're capable of actually bearing these obligations. That has, is why the neglect has persisted for 40 years. Right? Our final remark is that in the process of shedding obligation, the successful, the metropolitan skilled, have peeled off from shared identity with everybody else. They no longer recognize an obligation to the rest of us. And let me close with um, the, the comment of the most articulate of the metropolitan commentators, who is uh, Janan Ganesh. You probably read him in the Financial Times, right? It's a very perceptive, clever commentator who exemplifies the metropolitan perception of life. And he, uh, in one of his columns, described how it looks to him and the metropolitan skilled of which he's a representative, how the rest of Britain looks like to him. And what he said was, it feels like being shackled to a corpse. Right? Shackled to a corpse. You're the corpse, right? Part of it, right? Just think of that for a moment. Empathy, none, right? Sympathy, none, right? A belief that something can be done, none. A belief that something ought to be done, none. Shackled to a corpse. Right? That is the reason why the metropolitan elite who run policy have done nothing for 40 years. They have peeled off from a sense of shared identity and therefore a sense of shared obligation. Had Janan Ganesh said that about one of the favored metropolitan victim groups, he'd have been out of a job in two days. As it is, he just got promoted to going to Washington. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to find this uh, quite a difficult job, because normally what an academic discussant would do would be to pick holes in um, what they just heard. Um, but I'm not going to find many holes, uh, I don't think, other than, other than to say, if I, if I was one of the workers who built one of the great pyramids, I might quibble with the corporation being the only way you can do predict, productive work if we want to go back um, to kind of pre-capitalist times. Um, I, I'm delighted that somebody um, like Paul, who uh, has such a wide breadth of interests, has written this book um, and, and is taking this interest because What's quite unusual, I mean, I, I've tried in the last 10 years in my tiny way to try to understand the overlap and the tensions between class and place. And this, to me, seems to be the key thing, that notionally aspatial structures, uh, like corporations being an obvious one of them, uh, welfare, social welfare being another one, notionally aspatial um, structures have massively spatial outcomes. So if you look at the UK, drawing a line from Bristol to the Wash, um, north of uh, that line, pretty much, well, 52, 53% of, of the GVA of those regions will be labour returns. And south of the line, it will be 52, 53% is non-labour returns. Now, now that means, it's a very kind of subtle difference in the way that we make our money in the regions of the UK. But it means that when the balance shifts between returns to labour and returns to capital, 
in a notionally aspatial way because corporation tax is the same across the UK and corporations behave the same across the UK and largely across Western Europe and, and America. There are, a, there are spatial outcomes because people in the regions are not as engaged in corporate ownership as they are in the southeast. And what's happened, obviously, as Paul has eruditely said over the last 40 years, is we've had what, um, what J.K. Galbraith Jr. called the predator state emerging, where you get not only within government but within private sector corporations, instead of, you know, uh, in the old days, ICI being run by an engineer who'd come up from the factory floor to become a middle manager and then sit on the board of directors of ICI or one of the kind of old titan companies, now you get lawyers, accountants, and other professional classes hopping between corporations, hopping between corporations and regulators, hopping between corporations, regulators, and, and actually the government in a kind of revolving doorway, and these people having absolutely no emotional connection to poor people, or even middle class people. And that, I think, is, is something that, that even in a region as poor as Wales, we can see this happening in, in terms of the way in which we have effectively uh, replicated the British state in miniature in Wales with a relatively prosperous capital in the southeast and with waves, circles of dysfunction going out from that um, in ways which, which give, us, give us real problems. And I think, you know, obviously we're going to, we're going to hear um, uh, a further kind of um, exposition on the role of the corporation in this. And it, it seems to me that when we gifted effectively personhood to corporations, um, but gave them a level of indemnity way beyond what's available to individual humans. We made what, in retrospect, seemed to be a bit of an error, certainly in the kind of US-UK approach to how we, how we develop corporate governance and corporate structures. And you know, what we have now is a situation where there are, there are certainly um, class outcomes from that, uh, in terms of the, this disconnect between the, the middle and the bottom and, and, and those at the top. And, you know, what, what I've said in, in, in my work is that you have a situation where, where capital is sticky in the centre and slippery at the edge. You can push capital out to the edge in terms of welfare payments, in terms of money for university to do innovation, in terms of encouraging startups, but those, that capital doesn't remain in those poor places. You know, there's a reason Julian MacDonald doesn't make dresses in Bertha, where he was born in Cavartha. And until we can work out a way to rebalance our economic system so that we can somehow make capital sticky at the edges, then I think we'll, we're going to be stuck with dysfunction for some time yet. So thank you very much, Paul. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Calvin. Well, first of all, can I reiterate Paul's thanks to all of you for having organised this event. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be here this evening. I'm going to be talking to you about one of the most important institutions in our lives. It's not the state, religion, the family, or even Cardiff Business School. It's an institution that clothes, feeds, and houses us, that employs us and invests our savings. It's the source of economic prosperity and the growth of nations around the world. But at the same time, it's been the source of growing inequality environmental degradation and mistrust. Every year for the past 35 years, Ipso Mori, the market research company, has undertaken a survey of a thousand people in Britain as to which professions they trust to tell the truth. At the top, alongside doctors, nurses and teachers, I'm pleased to say, come university professors. We might not have much power, pay, or prestige, but at least people trust us to do nothing, earn nothing, <laughs> and to take no credit for it. At the other end, come business leaders, just ahead of estate agents, professional footballers, journalists, and rock bottom come politicians. And they come below trade union officials and the man and woman in the street. And it's not just a banker's phenomenon. 
because they come below bankers who are separately reported. And it's not just a post-financial crisis phenomenon, because it's been going on for most of the 35 years of the survey. Mistrust in business is profound, pervasive, and persistent. Why is that the case? Well, I'd suggest to you that it's due to this, the Friedman Doctrine after Milton Friedman, that there is one and only one social purpose of business, to increase profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. And that's been the source of business practice, business policy, business education around the world ever since. But it wasn't always so. Indeed, the corporation was established 2,000 years ago under Roman law to perform a very public function of collecting taxes, minting coins, building infrastructure, looking after public buildings. And for nearly all of its 2,000-year history, it has combined its commercial activities with a public role. It's only over the last 60 years that that notion that there is only one purpose of business to increase profits has arisen. And that has been the source of growing inequality, environmental degradation, and that mistrust. And it's potentially going to get worse. Because while technology offers tremendous opportunities for enhancing our well-being as humanity, it also poses serious risks and threats, not least in relation to, for example, the future of work. And as technology accelerates, so the lag of public policy behind business innovation increases. And the suitability of regulation to deal with the problems that business will create becomes increasingly inadequate. But things are changing. A couple of months ago, someone with more capability of influencing our lives through the assets that he controls under management, made the following statement, that every business should have a purpose, not a strapline or a marketing campaign, but a statement of its fundamental reason for being, what it does on a daily basis. Purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. That person was Larry Fink, who is the CEO and president of BlackRock, the largest investment management business in the world, which commands some $7 trillion under management. And the leaders of other multi-trillion dollar asset management firms have said similar things, such as Vanguard and State Street. And it's not only leaders of investment management businesses who are recognizing the importance of purpose. So, too, are policy makers. The UK led the world in terms of the corporate governance standards it adopted after the Cadbury Committee in 1992. And that became the basis of corporate governance codes in many countries and the OECD principles on corporate governance. But last July, the Financial Reporting Council put forward a new set of corporate governance codes in which it suggested that the primary role of corporate governance is not simply to solve the agency problem of aligning the interests of management with those of shareholders. It was instead about aligning the interests of management with the purpose of business. And that is what the role of boards, the composition of boards, the remuneration systems should be focused on achieving. And a month ago, the Financial Reporting Council and the Financial Conduct Authority brought out a joint statement on stewardship in investment management firms, in which they said that investment management firms should also have a purpose, which wasn't simply about maximizing the interests of their beneficiaries, their investors, but also their role in stewarding the companies in which they invest. 
And it's not just policymakers who are saying these things. So too are politicians. In the United States, Elizabeth Warren, the presidential candidate, has put forward her Accountable Capitalism Act, in which she's suggesting that large corporations with revenues in excess of a billion dollars should have a public charter which incorporates a public purpose. And in France, President Macron has put forward the notion of raison d'etre as being a core component in the civil code of all enterprises in France. The speed, the scale, and the extent of change that is going on in this area is impressive. And it centers around the question of why does business exist? Why is it created? What is it there to do? What does it aspire to become? And everything in terms of business practice and business policy should follow from that. The purpose of business is not to produce profits. The purpose of business is to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet. And in the process, it produces profits. But profits are not, per se, the purpose of business. Everyone who runs successful businesses knows that to be the case. And they do not profit from producing problems for people or planet. Instead, what they do is they commit to the corporate purpose. And they commit to those who help to create the corporate purpose. And those people, in turn, commit to the creation of the corporate purpose. And that gives rise to reciprocal relations of trust, the reciprocity to which Paul was just referring. And that is a source of mutual benefit, both for the parties to the firm and for the firm itself. It gives rise to more loyal customers, more engaged employees, more reliable suppliers, more supportive shareholders and societies. And that creates greater revenues, lower costs, and more profits. Now, what underpins this is the trustworthiness of companies to uphold their purposes. And that relies on the values of business, values of integrity and honesty, and a culture of commitment to the corporate purpose. Now, those three elements of purpose, trustworthiness, and values and culture are the basis of a reconceptualization of business for the 21st century. And the question is, how can we actually bring this about? How can we make it a reality rather than a fantasy? And I'd suggest that there are four key levers that need to be exercised to bring it about. The first is law and regulation. Corporate law at the moment is about the rights of shareholders and the fiduciary responsibility of directors to uphold the interests of shareholders. That's a mistake. It should be about the obligations and responsibilities of directors to uphold the corporate purpose, as well as the rights of shareholders. And regulation at the moment, we see as being about the rules of the game and the enforcement of the rules of the game. And that's important because one does have to have standards, minimum standards, by which companies behave. But in many cases, one should expect much more than that from companies. And in particular, one should expect much more from companies that perform 
a public function. And that, in particular, applies to the commanding heights of an economy, the utilities, public service providers like Carillion, public infrastructure companies, auditing companies, banks, where there is a natural public service associated with those companies. And in those companies, one should align the private purpose of companies with the public interest. And the way to do that is to make their license conditions to operate part of their stated purposes and make it a fiduciary responsibilities of directors to uphold those public purposes as well as their private purposes. The second area relates to ownership and governance. Ownership at the moment we associate with shareholders, and in particular, dispersed institutional shareholders. We should instead look at ownership as being the ownership of the corporate purpose, and that there is a duty on owners to uphold those corporate purposes. And there are many parties that can and should do that, not just institutional investors, but employees, the state, families, foundations, depending on the nature of the business. And governance at the moment, as I mentioned, we associate just with the agency problem. And that's not what it should be predominantly about, as the Financial Reporting Council has now understood. It should be about aligning managerial interests with those of the corporate purpose. The third area is in relation to measurement and performance. At the moment, what we measure is financial capital and material capital. But those are becoming increasingly irrelevant as companies move into a sphere where their material assets are declining dramatically and their other inputs, in particular human capital, social capital, and natural capital, are becoming increasingly important. We need to measure those forms of capital alongside financial capital and material capital. And at the moment, we measure performance in terms of profits that take account of the responsibilities of companies to maintain their physical capital, but with no acknowledgement to the importance of maintaining their human, social, and natural capital as well. It is important that we recognize the significance of those other forms of inputs into companies by measuring their contribution and maintaining the value of those contributions. And the final area is in relation to finance and investment. Finance currently is about the contractual relations between providers and users of finance. And that's partly because our tax system encourages companies to use debt by favoring through the corporate tax system debt over equity. We should recognize the importance of relations as well as contractual forms between providers and users of finance. And in particular, the relevance of equity in doing that. And in particular, the importance of having not just dispersed anonymous shareholders, but block holders holding significant blocks of shares, such as families, that one can identify. You cannot have a relationship with the anonymous. And relationships are very important between firms and their investors, just as they are in the rest of society. And we shouldn't just regard private capital as being the source of funding business. Because increasingly, the scale 
the length of investment, in particular in infrastructure, requires a real partnership between the private and the public sector. And that involves that alignment of interests between private companies and governments through, for example, incorporating their infrastructure licenses as part of their purposes and fiduciary responsibilities. Now, those four elements in terms of law and regulation, ownership and governance, measurement and performance, finance and investment, are the four levers that can really produce companies with purposes that we can trust and with the appropriate values and cultures. And I want to illustrate this in relation to a particular company. It's a company that was started in Dowley, in Merthyr Tidville, near here, in 1759. It was the Dowley Iron Works, which grew to be one of the largest iron producers in the world, which built or helped to build the great western region that Brunel built, the railroads of North America and Europe and Russia. It expanded by merging with other companies to become what was known as Gaskin and Nettlefold by the end of the 19th century. And then during the 20th century, it went through a remarkable transformation from being one of the largest iron and steel producers in the world to being a supplier to the automobile and aerospace industry. And the way in which it did that was through merging with other companies, acquiring other companies, and in the process, it issued shares to finance that. And as it issued shares, it diluted the family interest to the point that the families lost control. And last year, what became known as GKN was subject to a hostile bid by the private equity turnaround company, Melrose. And by March of last year, it had disappeared. It had gone the way of many parts of British industry. Cadbury had gone the same way some eight years earlier when it was acquired by Kraft through having gone through exactly the similar process. Cadbury issued shares, in particular when it merged with Cadbury Schweppes, to a point that the Cadbury family were diluted. They lost control and the company was subject to a hostile bid. Back at the end of the 19th century, Alfred Marshall said, it is a strong proof of a marvelous spirit of uprightness and honesty in commercial matters that so many of the leaders of our great companies yield as little as they do to the vast temptations of fraud that lie in their way. He was referring to companies such as Cadbury's, Roundtree, Boots, Beecham, Coleman, Rickett, nearly all of them Quaker-owned families. A bit like Titus Salt, they had strong religious background that were featured in their ethical principles. Now, that wasn't a golden age. These were beacons, shining lights, in what was essentially a cesspit of malpractice amongst the corporate sector. And it reflects the fact that one can have companies that pursue very successful commercial policies while operating in a system that is quite hostile to that type of conduct. Now, the reason for emphasizing this is to come back to Paul's subject, capitalism. Because what the traditional view of capitalism suggests is that capitalism is an economic system of private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. And ownership is a bundle of rights over the assets of a firm that confer strong forms of authority on the possessors of those rights. And firms are regarded as being nexuses of contracts managed by boards of directors for the benefit of their owners. Now, that's a very coherent, consistent view 
of capitalism as being private ownership for profit, where the owners exert power and authority over the rest of us who are employed by contracts. But there is a parallel universe, a universe that says that capitalism is an economic and social system to produce profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet by private and public owners who do not profit from producing problems for people or planet. And ownership there is not just a bundle of rights, but a set of obligations and responsibilities to uphold those purposes. And firms are not just nexuses of contracts, they're nexuses of reciprocal relations of trust based on values and principles enshrined by the boards of directors. Now, the traditional view aligns in capitalism private interests of firms with the public interest through competition, competition in product markets, capital markets, and labor markets, and where there are market failures on regulation. But between market efficiency and regulatory effectiveness, there is a void which is increasingly becoming a chasm as technology accelerates, where there is both market failure and government failure. And in that void, we rely on business to transform our individual self-interests into collective, cooperative, common purposes. We cannot rely on the strings of regulation and competition policy simply to pull companies in the social direction. They have to have an intrinsic purpose that recognizes their broader responsibilities. And to do that, we rely on their trustworthiness. Because trust is one, if not the, most important and yet unrecognized assets of firms. Because ultimately, trustworthy corporations are commercially successful corporations, and the competitiveness of nations depends on the trustworthiness of its corporations for the prosperity of the many, not just the, for the few, for the future, as well as the present. Thank you very much.